If you have your Bibles this morning, please open them up to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to be looking at just a single verse this morning. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25. Before we dive into the word of God and rejoice in what God has for us, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, your word is sweet, sweeter than a honeycomb. It is rich, it is pure, it is good for us. Father, would you help us to delight in it this morning, that we may delight in you. Work in us, O God, according to the riches of your grace in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. I don't know what you are capable of doing. I don't know what you could put on your or have been able to put on your resume of things that you have accomplished. Yesterday, just to brag a little bit, I was out playing with my boys and or a few of my boys and another boy from our church and I owned them all at basketball. Uh, Of course, they were all like eight years old and younger, (laughs) which is about my speed. That's uh, about all I can do when it comes to, to basketball. Um, that's that's a, the height of my ability. You know, our ability, when as we get older, our abilities grow and they increase. Unless we're talking about ability to sleep in the weirdest sorts of places and ways. Children, I, I don't know about you, I, my, my boys, especially when they're young, you walk in on them and they're like sleeping on their neck and everything's fine in the morning. Like I now, I simply find that if I, my head is turned the wrong way, when I wake up, everything is sore and I'm, what's going on? But generally, the older we get, the, the, the taller, the bigger we get, the more we can do. But at some point, it stops, right? You get to a certain point and it stops being, now I can do and keep growing and the older I get, the more I can do. Now it's the older I get, the less I can do. And I'm, I'm not certain when that happened. It's already happened. I'm not, I can't place, put my finger on it, but that's, that is with us all. Our abilities rise and fall. What we are capable of doing rises and fall. But this passage talks to us about what Jesus is able to do. And it is a powerful thing which he is able to affect. One that isn't affected by time or age. Not affected by outside circumstances or people. It doesn't depend on us. It doesn't depend on the decisions of any court. It is not susceptible to popular vote. Christ is able to do something. And Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, tells us exactly what that is. And we're usually, over the last few, few months, over the last year, I've been preaching through the book of Genesis. It's the very first book of the Bible, and the chapters are long, and I've been working through all of them. It's a delight to just be able to rest in one verse this morning. So we're going to take it line by line, and just kind of... Savor it like a good meal. First thing we see what Jesus is able to do. Therefore, he is able to save. He is able to save. 
able to save, able to, able to rescue, which is itself a very unflattering thing for him to, to say toward us. It suggests, it implies that each one of us needs saving, which is not a compliment for us. For any of us to, to need something shows that we are weak, shows that we are dependent, shows that we are lacking in something. But to be needing to be saved, that shows an utter dependence, an utter uh, helplessness outside of outside help. And, and that's exactly what we see here. Jesus alone is able to save. But the saving is not talking about some political experience or financial experience or health experience. It, the, the saving that he is talking about here, the saving that Jesus affects, is a saving of something far more important, something far more eternal. You see, we, we, all throughout Scripture, we are given this picture that God is holy. When Isaiah, the prophet, is, is given a glimpse of who God is, he hears the, the, the heavenly angels crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we hear the echo from the Old Testament, You must be holy as I am holy. Or as Jesus would say, You must be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. And if that's the standard... then there is not a single one of us that meets it. We are all doomed. For we, the Bible gives the description, the the Bible is the diagnosis, it gives the diagnosis that we are sinners. Not merely that we sin and therefore we are sinners, like, like we have committed a crime and therefore we are criminals. No, we are criminals, we are sinners, therefore we sin. This is who we are at our heart. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep, like animals, all the sheep, we've, we've gone astray. We have, we have turned everyone to his own way. I mean, isn't that true of your life? Don't you notice your own heart, your, your own desires? Don't they, they point you to go your way? Personalize everything. Make, make it your own. Have it your way. And as a result, Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, no, not one. And as a result, we read just a few verses later in Romans 3, that the whole world is under the judgment of God, that on account of our sins, the wrath of God is coming. So what it means for Jesus to save us is that He alone deals with, as God, deals with God's justice toward us. He makes atonement. He redeems. He reconciles. He purchases forgiveness. That wrath of God that is, that is coming, He propitiates. That's a, that's a big word for an Easter morning. That's a, that is a deep word. 
It describes the work of God to satisfy his own wrath. Husbands who have ever made their wives angry and tried to win that smile back with flowers or some good works, you are trying to propitiate her. Wives, you who have done something wrong with your husbands and you make a, a good meal or you try to do something he likes, you buy him that, that hammer, that tool, that whatever, you watch football with him. Baseball, now that's a sport to watch. You're propitiating your husband. And Jesus propitiates the wrath of God. But this ability, therefore, he is able. This is not mere capacity, right? This is not mere possibility. We, we are used to talking about ability. I have the ability to do something, but I can't always do that thing. Someone may have the ability to hit the home run, but they don't always hit the home run. They may have the ability to hit the three-pointer, but they don't always. You may have the ability to stop on the, by the store on the way home to get what you need, but you forget sometimes to do that. We have the ability to do things, but we forget all the time. We fail to do them all the time. But Jesus' ability is not mere capacity, is not mere potential. It is certain. It is real. His ability does not depend on the circumstances being right or the opposition not getting in his way. Jesus' Ability is certainty. You and I, you may have remembered asking a teacher at school one day, hey, can I use the restroom or can I get this? And maybe that teacher, like so many teachers and so many parents, I don't know, can you? And you respond back, may I get that? Oh, may you? Of course. Jesus' ability is not can I. Jesus' ability is I will. The power of Christ to save is not mere potential or probable or possible. It is certain. So when Jesus, when the author of Hebrews is writing to save, that Jesus is able to save us, everywhere he uses this word, this idea behind ability, In reference to Jesus, every time he uses it in this little book we call Hebrews, he means it is certain that Jesus does it. But that only raises a question. There's a lot of things that we can do, but what is the the extent of this power? The author of Hebrews goes on to tell us, therefore he is able to save to the uttermost. I love that word. Different translations are going to have it differently. Some will will have it. He was able to save us completely or fully. Some forever. They're all capturing some idea here. I love that picture of to the uttermost. That's not a word we use nearly enough, right? Are you full? Yes. Full to the uttermost. Doesn't quite fit in normal language. The picture here is two. It is first qualitative that Jesus' work, his ability to save, is it is 
perfect. It is profound, complete and whole and full. It is without defect, without anything missing, without anything being missed. It is without any outside need for help. Friend, your guilt, my guilt, our guilt before God, it it is not too great to be justified. Our failures are not too frequent to be erased. Our sin, not too severe for Him to atone for. Our past, with our selfishness and our greed and our anger and our lust and our pride, it is not too much. We We are not too scarred and shameful that we cannot be forgiven. Brother and sister, do not allow yourself to believe even for a moment that you have begun to reach the outer boundaries of the grace of God toward you. You have not touched nor come close to the edges of His love. You cannot reach it because we cannot reach the boundary of Christ's powerful salvation which works to the uttermost. And it will one day before God, when we stand before Him, we will be cleansed and and washed to the uttermost so that there will not be one shred of guilt or shame before Him. So great is the mercy and grace of Christ. As it has been written, there is more grace in Him than there is sin in us. His ability to save is profound. It is perfect. But there is also a second quality that this word picks up on. Not only is it perfect and profound, it is is permanent. It is forever. It is eternal. There will never be a time in this life or in, all, or in all eternity when the work of Christ is not needed or comes up short. Think of how many times you have gone, reached into your fridge, you pull out the milk, you open it up, it smells not quite right, and you check that sell-by date. There is no expiration date with the work of Jesus. There is no shelf life. There is no use-by date. There is nothing in our life that doesn't need to be changed, that won't go out of date, that will never need to be updated or rotated. Everything was going to come to an end, even ourselves, but there is nothing like this with Jesus. His ability to save is powerful, it is perfect, it is profound, and it is permanent. There is never a day and moment when Christ will regret what he has done anyone who draws near to him. What Jesus accomplished was profound and permanent. It is eternal. We ask the question, who is it that Jesus does all this for? 
Therefore, he is able to save who? To the uttermost, those who come to God through him. He does not save everyone, every person. He has not accomplished this perfect and profound salvation for every person. Not even for those who simply draw near, who want to draw near to God. He does it for those who draw near to God through Him. Through Christ. What does it mean to draw near to God? This is common language in the Bible. Describes our faith in Him. Our need to receive Him. It's a beautiful word. We tend to think of faith. We merely think of, all right, believing something that we do not necessarily see. But that's more. This is a a beautiful picture of what faith is. Sometimes faith is described as simply receiving Him. Here it is pictured as drawing near to God through Christ. This is what Jesus is describing In John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. This humble trust in Christ. And this is an exclusive way. Draw near to God through Him. It is exclusive. There is is no other way. Only those who draw near to God through Jesus are saved to the uttermost. Christ himself declared that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So the very first step we must take to draw near to God is to see that we dare not come to him outside any other way than the way that he himself has ordained. There is no way to be forgiven outside of Christ. There is no way to be saved to taste of this uttermost saving power outside of Jesus. He is the exclusive way to God. He is also the exhaustive way to God. Therefore, He is able to save to the uttermost, we might say, all those who come to God through Him. If before the stress is on only those, now it is on all those who come to God through Him. The invitation to God through Christ is extended to all. Come to me, Christ says. Come to me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus says in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not never thirst. The prophet Isaiah writes in verses 1 to 3 of Isaiah 55, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who who has no money, come buy and, and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without price. Why, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in, in rich food. Incline your ear and come to 
me here that your soul may live. This is an exclusive way. It is an exhaustive way. Open to all. And there will, the scriptures tell us, there will come a day when people from every nation and tribe and tongue and background as the most diverse group ever gathered in history will gather before God because they have drawn near to him through Christ Jesus. It is an exhaustive way, an exclusive way. It is, it's an exquisite way. It is a sweet way. There is, there's no one like Jesus. Therefore, He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him. The very one through whom we come to draw near to God is the very one who has come by God's will to secure us. That is sweet. That is delightful. That is good and glorious. Friend, this invitation is for us all. It is, it is more than an invitation. It is a command that Christ calls. Come to me. That's, that's not merely a suggestion. That is an imperative. Come. Trust. Believe. Repent. Turn. Follow. All of these imperatives. All of these commands of God to follow. To come. Will you this day turn from your sin? Will you this day turn from your own way? I'm not calling for perfection. That is not the call at all. Because the gospel call is not, it is not open to those who think they are perfect or, or who can make themselves perfect. The gospel call is open to we who know that we need to be saved. Because otherwise we are helpless. That pride that you feel that just has a grip on you, that anger, that lust, that that jealousy, that bitterness, that self-centeredness and pride. Where you wonder, will I ever stop thinking of myself first? It is an offense not only to those around you, it is an offense to God most holy. And yet the very God whom we have offended is the one who has come to offer himself for us. Trust, turn, draw near to God today through Christ Jesus as your Savior. And how is Jesus able to save us to the uttermost? Since or because he always lives to make intercession for them. The very word at the beginning of verse 25, therefore, tells us we need to to look backwards. And we could go farther back, but we'll just look at verse 24. But he, that's Christ, because he continues forever. Jesus is alive because he lives 
Jesus is able to save us to the uttermost. Not because Jesus died, but because He now lives, Jesus is able to save us to the uttermost. You know, over the last handful of days, we have had April 14th, tax day. April 15th, which is Good Friday. Today, April 17th, Easter which is to remind us that the only thing more certain than death and taxes is the resurrection of Christ Jesus. Friend, we as Christians, we we know how insane the claim is that we worship someone who died and rose again. It it is meaningless to worship someone who died because everybody dies. We worship someone who rose again and is now alive. And that is the difference. And this would have been the easiest thing in the world to just put an end to. This claim didn't start hundreds of years after Jesus was raised. It was immediate. All that needed to happen was for the religious leaders, for the Roman leaders, to present the body of Jesus, make it public, to put an end to the claim that Jesus is alive. How could it be alive? This is His body. But they could produce no such claim. They could make make no such claim. They could produce no such body because there wasn't one. More than that, the mentioned this every Christ, every Easter we, we talk about this, but in that in the ancient world, the most unreliable witnesses in the ancient world, or maybe I should put it this way, because that's that's only going to get me in trouble at home. The 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 people who were most who were believed to be the most unreliable witnesses were women. In the ancient world, a, a woman's testimony was was half that of a man's. So it would take a it would take two women in the court of law to equal one testimony of man. And even then, it, it was not always certain that that, would, that that would balance out. Women were believed to be unbelievable, unreasonable, liars, deceitful. And yet, the gospel writers did not flinch to include them as the very first witnesses to Christ. In fact, we know from records that there were people in in the time, in the years following the death and resurrection of Christ, there were people who refused to believe the resurrection account merely on the grounds that women were the first recipients, the first witnesses to it. And if this was something that the first apostles were trying to make up merely to, to... to, to create a new religion, to give some, some credibility to themselves and influence and power, they would have chosen those women. They would not have chosen those women. They, they would never have thought to use those women as the first witnesses. The only explanation for including women as the first witnesses for the resurrection is that they were the first witnesses to the resurrection. More than this, we, we read earlier, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that there were, after Christ rose from the dead, there were numerous appearances, numerous people who saw at one time 
Paul writes more than 500. And you have to remember Paul is writing in the lifetime of the very people that were witnesses to this event. Not long ago, our church lost a church member who was 104 years old. I, I, I went to visit him years ago and, and got to sitting in his living room talking with him and his wife. And as we talked, I noticed on his wall there were medals and medallions and I asked about those and he told me that was from when he had served in World War II. And I asked, well, you know, where, ha- where did you serve? And he told me a few places and, and then he just casually mentioned that he was a part of the Battle of the Bulge. And I said, wait, the Battle of the Bulge? I, I've read about that. I've heard stories about that. I, I've watched movies about that. Oh, yes, yeah, I, I served there. Now, there are fewer and fewer men fewer and fewer people alive today who were there, who served, who know what it was like. And there is going to come a time in which they no longer are around. But Paul is writing in the lifetime of the very witnesses. And there's this this understood invitation. If you don't believe... Take a trip. Go ask. That's why the gospel writers, in part, include so many names, not only of places, but of people. You can go to this town and find so-and-so, and and he can attest to what Jesus did for him. These people can attest of what they saw Jesus do. But more than all this, one of the most powerful pieces of evidence is that against all expectations, the very first believers actually believed that Jesus rose from the dead. You see, in the early centuries, as as today, that claim that someone has died and risen again was fantastical, it was legendary, it was mythological, not to be taken seriously. In fact, we know from the Gospels that the, the disciples themselves recorded how they in the day following, they, they did not believe that Christ had risen from the dead. They were not expecting him to. Not until the women came to report it. And the death of would-be messiahs in the time of Jesus always, without a doubt, ended the movements. In fact, one New Testament scholar describes two potential messiahs who lived within a century of, of Christ. One, Simon Bar-Gyor, AD 66-70, and another one, Simeon Bar-Kokhba. Both were killed by Romans. Both were believed or claimed to be the Messiah and had followers. But as soon as each one of them died, their disciples, their movements, all dissipated into nothing. But the reverse happens with the followers of Christ. They go from disappointed and disillusioned to then being bold. And they begin to grow. And the only explanation, reasonable explanation, is that Christ was indeed alive. They were tortured. 
They lost property. And they were, each of the disciples were killed. And it could understand how for influence or power, people might be willing to endure all sorts of difficulties. But not a single one failed to attest to the fact of Christ's life and death and resurrection. Friends, the claim that Jesus has risen from the grave and is alive, this is the foundation for all our hope. We see this not only because Jesus is alive, because since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is not in heaven now, sitting back on his cosmic lazy boy doing nothing. He is busy. In fact, he is always doing something because he always lives to make intercession. He is living every moment to intercede for his people. There is no, there is no moment's rest for him. No moment's reprieve. No vacation days. No days off. And this isn't a burden that he is grieved to bear. This is a burden to him that he is enjoying. This is as much a burden to him as light is to the sun. He lives every moment to intercede for those who draw near to, draw near to God through him. Jesus hasn't lost interest in his people. He is instead, friend, at this moment, if you have trusted in him, if you belong to him, he is at this moment pleading for you. And there has never been a moment in your life, no matter how dark, no matter how difficult, in which Jesus has not been pleading for you. His very presence is His power. As He stands before His Father, through His living and eternal intercession, Jesus is able to save sinners to the uttermost. Think of how different this is from every religious system. Religious priests are only able to save partially, you must go to them again and again and again. you got to offer prayers again and again. Do the right thing, say the right words, perform the right sacraments or the right works, give the right amount of money. All of it must be done again and again and again. And priests themselves, they can only serve for a short time. And and priests themselves, they need priests for themselves. But with such as Jesus, he needs no one else. He lives now to make intercession for you. And what do such priests give that Christ himself cannot? Jesus is able to save profoundly, perfectly, and permanently 
Because Jesus is alive. And if Jesus is pleading for us, why do so many go to Mary or the saints or some other person? What do they give? What can they offer that Jesus himself in his own prayers cannot provide? You see, we cannot go to anyone other without undermining the significance and the worth of what Jesus provides. And the basis of Jesus' ongoing work to intercede for his people is his own finished work at the cross. As I said before, the Bible gives us that right diagnosis. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one of us, we've, we have turned to his own way. The last line of that verse, he has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What Christ is pleading before the Father for us now is that he perfects through his own finished work what we could never do. His blood covers our sin. His obedience in place of our disobedience. His righteousness in the place of our unrighteousness. So that when we go to the, go- when we go to the Lord, we-, we go to Him through Christ. Friend, you may believe that Jesus is a Savior. You may even believe that He is the Savior. But I would ask you, how do you know He is your Savior? How can you be sure that His death and His intercessory work is done for you? And if you begin to answer that question with, well, there was a time when I prayed or I, I did this. Or I responded in this way. Or someone did this for me. You have begun wrongly. Our confidence before God does not begin with I, with me. It begins with Jesus. What Jesus has done. And what Jesus is now doing. All our confidence, friend, must be in Him. Not our own prayers, not our own singing, not our own goodness, not our own church attendance, not our own religiosity. All our confidence is in Him. It is not even in our own faith. For it is not our faith that saves us. It is Jesus that saves us through faith. Friend, trust in Him. Trust in Him who has died and lives and is living. And brother and sister, you who have trusted in Christ, you have drawn near to God. Let that not be merely something you have done in the past. Let that be something you do day by day by day, no matter how unworthy you feel, because 
no matter how unworthy we feel, our unworthiness is deeper, it is worse, it is greater than we can imagine. But the worth of Christ and the significance of Him is far greater than anything we could ever do. Trust, rest, rejoice in Christ and you will not be put to shame. Let's pray. Our God, you, in your Son, you are able to save us perfectly, profoundly, permanently, because your Son lives. And it's at this moment interceding for us before your face. Our God, we praise you for all this is according to your gracious and merciful and loving plan. Oh God, I pray that you will so work in us that we will respond and know such joy in Christ that we will have the certainty of those promises which you have granted to us. That all those who hope in you cannot, will not be put to shame. Oh God, we thank you for what you do in advance. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.